This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Ashram Lux Lucid. I'm your host, Ashram Lux Lucis, and today's special guest is the owner and operator of historic 4th Street Recording Studio in Santa Monica, California. She acquired the culturally historic studio back in 1989 from Brian Epstein and became the sole owner in 2001. The studio was made famous by such artists as Little Richard, George Clinton, and the Beach Boys, and later, under her charge, Fiona Apple tracked her Grammy-nominated album, Title, and bands Incubus, Alien Ant Farm, and Hoobastank went on to become platinum-selling artists. Having a keen sense for talent, both in performers as well as producers and engineers, she developed an internship program at the studio to help launch the careers of many young producers and engineers. Aside from the studio, she's enjoyed a brief career as a comedic actress. She's worked in film production and was a founding member of the Filmmakers Alliance. She was the set director on 35 music videos and co-produced and directed the film Doubleday. Putting her degree in English to use, she wrote for WOW and Hot Teen Magazines and hosted a weekly women's writing group in Venice called Pandora's Box. She read scripts for Trimark and wrote the pitch that secured funding for fried green tomatoes. In the mid-90s, she was a co-founder and administrator of Rave the Vote, working on political campaigns for L.A. Mayor and the Los Angeles City Council. As a music consultant for United Way, she produced events including a party for Gloria Estefan and recruited No Doubt's Gwen Stefani as a spokesperson for recording artists against drunk driving. For eight years, she hosted a salon at her home in Venice, the Albert Hoffman Friday Night Dinners. Speakers included a broad spectrum of counterculture intelligentsia, including Dr. Oscar Janiger, Fraser Clark, and Allen Ginsberg. She created and hosted Represent U.S., a series of socially conscious hip-hop freestyle nights at 4th Street, and sponsored Artists from Venice 2000, a program for at-risk youth. And if all that wasn't enough, she's a member of NERIS and is vice president of Los Angeles Women in Music. Wow. Please welcome <laughs> Kathleen Wirt. <laughs> Hello. Oh, my goodness. I uh, I uh, don't know where you found uh, all that stuff in my biography. I tried to find it online <laughs> last night, and I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, I have some good stalking <clears throat> abilities, I guess. <laughs> Cyber stalking. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's cer- it certainly sounds like a Los Angeles career where you just sort of throw everything up against the wall and you see what sticks, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it it's, uh, it's sure hasn't been boring, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about how you got started with that because it looks like you went to school and you got a, an English degree. Um, and that's, yes. you know, aside from using it as a writer, it's kind of far-fetched from the music industry. So how did that whole scenario come into play? Were you always interested well, in getting in music? or Not really. No, I, I got to say that uh, music was always something that um, I listened to whatever my boyfriends were listening to. And mm-hmm. um, I, I developed a, like a, a wide um, a wide taste, you know, because of that. And uh I think it was my interest, obviously, in writing and um, artistic content that really drove the whole thing. Because I, one of the things I enjoy most about my job is providing a space that uh, enables people to feel creative and comfortable, so that they can, um, you know, achieve something to the apex of their abilities. Um, I've always really enjoyed that, you know, cre- creating sort of a magic, um, safe space for, for artists. Um, I, I came to this through my ex-husband, who um, was a musician, a touring musician, and uh, became a producer. Um, and we we ran the studio together for the first years. And when we split up, I uh, we actually continued to work together for another four years. And then in 2001, he was marrying someone else. Um, and he just we said, well, I guess we better get divorced now. So we, we did, <laughs> and I took the studio instead of alimony. Um it's uh, 
it's interesting because it's not what I had, um, you know, worked toward my life or thought I would be doing. And I just realized that it, it fits in really well with all the other activities. I mean, you know, the things that you listed off that I've been involved in, I did almost all of that simultaneously while running the studio. So, um, you know, it all, when you start working with artists, it just all sort of fits together. You know, there's, there's just all mm-hmm. kinds of things. You can't really define what it is that you do. Um, you know, I just think you wake up every day, what you enjoy doing. Um, I had a, an epiphany a few years back where I was at traffic school and I was so annoyed to be there <laughs> and just so irritated and angry. And I was just like, Arr. and I, then I suddenly realized that I could not remember the last time I was somewhere I didn't want to be. And uh, that was an amazing gift. I just thought, wow, you know, this is, this is a, an awesome life that I've got right here. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And so going back to I'm kind of curious though about, you know, the English um what were you thinking that you were going to, you know, quote unquote be when you grow up? I, at, you know, at that point? <laughs> well, it's funny cuz I'm still doing that, you know. I've got uh, you know, short stories, unfinished screenplays, two novels. You know, it's it's one of those things that you always go, well, you know, maybe I'll do this when I'm an old lady, um, you know, or when I was when I was involved in you know more radical political political activities during the Bush administration, I would think, well, maybe I'll do this when I'm under house arrest, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but we uh, definitely, um, I I think that as a a writer, someone with a with that sort of background in, in literature that uh, every experience that you have adds to that. And um, I, I've often had people say to me, they, you know, they'll ask, like, you know, a lot of, like, seemingly insane people. And, you know, I'll say, well, that's because they're very talented. And um, I don't, I'm not easily um, angered. Uh, I, I, I really, I see reasons why people are the way they are and, and you know, understand um, how people got to places and um, I'm just very interested in the journey, you know? Yeah. So I, I think the writing feeds into that. Um, I have, I wouldn't want to take credit for anything, but I have I have assisted, I would say, in, in some songwriting lyrics with people um, that much like an English teacher would do, you know, not to say, oh, you know, write this or that or it would be more this like, well, you know, if you use water as imagery, it it's usually means sex, you know, throughout, you know, literary history. It's, it sort of evokes that. And, and I wouldn't just switch to that, you know, war thing. Why don't you stick with the water imagery? You know, it, it just, you know, things that, you know, if you were turning in a paper to your English teacher, they might uh, might write in the margins, you know, or yes, hmm. this rhymes, but it's a cliche, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. I, I think that a lot of times people – because something rhymes like Hemingway rewrote one chapter of one one book 80 times so it's not over till it's over and certainly a song is a very unique and perfect art form in that it it consists um you know of of words and melody and I think a lot of times people don't think as much about the words as they do about the melody they they just think oh this will do when Mm. um you know you could rewrite and rewrite and, and just come up with the absolute perfect thing to say and I, I there's yeah. a joy in that, you know, because writing a song is like writing poetry, um, you know, the lyric, the lyrical portion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got to paint that, that, that picture. Definitely, yeah. yeah, that definitely fits in with my with my um, you know educational background, uh, and, and another yeah. thing that I enjoy very much um, yeah. about my job. And you so, know, here we go. We here we we turn up where we turn up. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, life life uh, presents unique opportunities, and I, I think that. You know, if you're not afraid of, of, I think fear is is the biggest limiter in our lives. And if we're not afraid of things, then you know, who knows what we wind up doing? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great, you know, kind of, you know, maybe not not necessarily um, not having a specific direction and not being attached to an outcome can lead you to well, places you know, that. Yes, I must say this, yeah. that I think that if you don't have a goal, that, that, that it, it certainly makes life more enjoyable if you do. And in that respect, I would, I would say that the music industry has been incredibly challenged, you know, for pretty much the last decade. Um, two-thirds of the studios in Los Angeles closed down in a two-year period. It went from 390 studios to 135, just boom. This is probably, wow. you know, five or, five or six years ago. And that um, I'm one of those tenacious people that when somebody tells me no or 
I, I really want something that's going to be difficult. I just buckle down and I make it happen. And um, I'm often people will comment to me like, oh, I can't believe you've kept this place open. Or I can't believe you've kept it going. And I'll make a little joke about how I don't have a mortgage or any children. And um, and, and people laugh because it's true. You know, it, it mm-hmm. really, my goal to keep the studio open and to keep it viable and, and, uh, and working has definitely, I, I think, been a, a, an enriching factor in my life because you feel very satisfied when you're working toward a goal. And, and I would say that's kind of a simple goal is just to simply survive. <laughs> but mm. um, that, that is kind of what it's been, you know, through some of these years. Definitely. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that, w- that we have done is, um, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the internship program. There, there's no way that I would be here if I didn't have just a constant stream of very talented young people coming up through my place you know, they, they get school credit. Um, a lot of them we, we take from the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in Tempe, and they need 300 hours to graduate. And they're, they're very, very great employees. They're they conscientious, multi-talented, um, just kind of the cream of the crop. And I'm very proud of, uh, you know, the careers that have been launched out of Fourth Street. Um, we, one of them is... Uh, the co-producer and engineer of the neighborhood um, records that we've done uh, with the double platinum hit Sweater Weather, Summer Before Last. That's Chris Mullings. Um, mm-hmm. Sejo Navajas, who uh, purchased the API uh, console that I use right now, has uh, just produced and co-written um, his first uh, major label record that's coming out in April with an artist named Coco. Um, mm. uh, we've had, um, oh, Jose um, Alcantar was like the head guy on American Idol, um, you know, did the budget one year and hired everybody. He's working on Dancing with the Stars right now. Very proud of all these people, and, and, and they're also still some of my closest friends. We'll be right back. I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. You were talking about the ability to sort of um, see people and see how where they are and how they got mm. there. Okay. Do you, well, do you see that with yourself too? Like, are you are you um, self aware in that aspect? Well, it's interesting. I went to my thirty uh, year high school reunion uh, well, a while back, and um, I was the only person in my class who doesn't have any children. And I uh, went back to Springfield, Missouri, and uh, it was a real eye-opener because you, we, we come to these points where we evaluate where we are and where we've been and where we're going. And I found that everyone had pretty much suffered a lot of the same struggles and betrayals. You know, the fact that my industry had tanked um, and perhaps I wasn't making as much money as some other people, um, you know, other people – you know, had like illnesses in their families or they'd lost their job before they retired or their house had gone under and, you know, they lost everything uh, through the mortgage crisis. It, it, I think people are very resilient and that when you realize that, you know, it's cliche, but the whole glass half empty and half full thing, um, you know, my, I wouldn't even say mine's half empty. I, I always feel like it's full because there's some reason to, to enjoy whatever is happening. You know, you, you change the things you can and you, um, you find a way to live with the things that you can't change, you know? 
Did that answer your question? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, one thing I was going to say, it's a note I made last night about, um, I used to tell young artists that I was working with back, and this is back in the days when we did a lot of major label records, um, I would draw this little pie chart and I would say, look what you, what's required for becoming you know, a famous musician. Um, you know, presence, um, good songs, um, you know, lyrics, abilities, speak to people, perhaps good looks. Um, but the one thing on it that you had no control over was timing. And mm-hmm. um, pretty much what I'd seen was a lot of artists I knew had two opportunities to become famous, maybe the first one early on in their career when they weren't fully prepared to take advantage of what they were supposed to do or didn't really know what to do. And then maybe later on in their career when maybe they were not no longer willing to do the things that they needed to do. Um, but you had two opportunities. Um, I think nowadays one of the most wonderful things about this odd music business that we're working in is that the timing is less important than it's ever been because mm. the things that are good always are. And, you know, and you look at the EDM uh, music, the, the, uh, the return to things that were happening in the nineties, you know, heavy metal will never go away. Gangster rap is always going to be a subgroup. Um, you know, that the people who do things really well, don't have to change what they do to try to please other people because the timing was wrong for what you did. You know, Mm. I I think that's the wonderful thing about the internet. It's taken some things away from us as far as, you know, money goes in, in the way the business was run, but it's also enabled like a whole, uh, somebody said like a music middle class would, would, would rise up. And, and I feel like in a lot of ways that's happened, you know, that there's uh, every opportunity that there is and have there's other doors that have opened up yeah i like that i like that idea of the music middle class you know yeah i was going to say that that i uh when and I, I wish i could credit that to to who said that but i read it on, online somewhere some years back and i just thought you know i'm going to be a part of that um because four street recording provides a service that costs about half what the big studios do um, and, you know, probably twice as much as your home studio, but that there's definitely a niche there for, for quality work that doesn't cost as much. And I, I realized that we would flourish in hard times if, if we could do that. And, and that was the plan. And that's what we've done. Yeah. Yeah. You've been credited as being um, one of the top studios uh, under a hundred dollars an hour. Oh. Exactly, and um, and of course, when they said that, I think that studios cost more, um, you know. Uh, but I think that through the whole shakedown, when all the places closed down, pretty much if you if you didn't already own your equipment, it, it would be very difficult to make your equipment payments on what you could charge nowadays. Um, mm, and, yeah. and there's certainly some some really good music being made by people in their homes, you know. And there's some amazing home studios too. So a lot of it has to do with the guy behind the board, too. One of the things that appeals to me a lot about what I'm doing is that I've always been someone who liked to preserve the old ways. And the fact that we still have all this vintage analog gear is one of the reasons that I do what I do, because I feel like there is a, a need to remember these things and some place has to, to preserve them. So the fact that we've got this little studio that still has a tape machine and has a floating room encased in sand. You know, it's not just about owning a studio, but for me, it's about owning this particular studio.
talk about how when the industry is sort of restructured and then, you know, home studio access became more available. Um, when that started happening, and it's because you were able to keep, you know, your studio open, how did you have to sort of reorganize to keep in business and keep things going? Because now major labels weren't sticking bands in studios and people had access to home studios. So they were making recordings at home and didn't think they needed studios anymore. What were some well, of the ways and, and one of, kept things going? One, one, of the major, one of the major things is, you know, you don't have to sing on tune anymore. I mean, that, that, <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact that people are recording so quickly now that there's a lot of quick fixes. You know, they, they chop things up, they tune things. You know, back in the old days, if you weren't any good, you probably weren't making a record. <laughs> you know, I, I read somewhere that there's like 40 hours of crap uploaded to SoundCloud every minute. And that, that's, oh not a, that's not a statistic. I made that one up. But it, it's something like that. And yeah. I, I think, how do we wade through everything nowadays? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost as bad as not having access to things if you have to just wade through a bunch of crap to get to the good stuff. So yeah. definitely one of the things that uh, I am always championing is uh, I love when I have artists who don't use the computer. You know, we've, we've done some projects where people recorded the quote-unquote old-fashioned way straight to tape. And I think, you know, wow, back in 1992, we did this all day long. You know, there were always home studios. And, in fact, uh, ADATs were around when we got into this business. Mm. But uh, one thing that that I knew would happen, and you just sit still, is just because someone's got that gear doesn't mean that they can work it as well as someone who's been doing it every day for the last 10 years. You know, a lot of artists realize that – they had their home studio for demoing things, but when it comes to making a professional recording, that they would rather um, not spend 10 years studying that craft, rather spend that time writing their songs, and then let uh, someone else, you know, record it. Much the same as, you know, a lot of people don't do their own taxes or fix their own cars. Um, Mm -hmm. I think things have kind of settled in that respect. You know, just because the equipment is cheaper than ever and you can do it doesn't mean that you even want to or that you can do it that well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I I have a little home studio and there's no way I would ever record my band in it to put something out into the public. Like it's just, you know, yeah. plus it's nice I, to have I, that that I call them the fifth member or the you know, however many, you know, the producer, or the engineer, they're like extra members mm-hmm. of your band, you know, they're the outside mm-hmm. ears. Mm-hmm. They're the guiding light that can kind of, you know, um, take your baby in a new direction, you know, a better direction type of thing. And um, Yeah, you know, there's sort of a trend nowadays, too, I think, for, for kids to go, oh, yeah, I produced my record, you know, mm-hmm. or to take a co-produce with the producer. And I've always thought that was kind of a wank because they, of course, you're co-producing your record if you are the, the artist, but unless you're producing other artists besides yourself, I don't really think mm-hmm. you can call yourself the producer. Let the producer yeah. do that. You know? Yeah. That's his career. Let him, him, let him or her have that credit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your sort of this positive mindset. The glass is, you know, full. It's not half full. It's not half empty. It's full. So what do you attribute your mindset of, of, of staying positive in an industry that can be, you need, there's a lot of backstabbing. There's a lot of, um, phoniness and and people pooping on your passion and so how do you how do you how do you not let that affect you? What are some things you do? To well, I have to I have to say that it was a it was a really personal thing that enabled me to do this and it was uh, goes back to my literary background. Um, I read uh, Waiting for Godot when I was 17 years old, and I became this desperate teenage existentialist where I I thought. Uh, that it was a terrible thing that I would create my own, that I could create my own reasons for existence. And it was only some years later when I realized that if I chose to help other people, that creating my own reasons for existence, that I could create wonderful reasons for existence. And um, I also read, and I I still have um, a a religious faith, but it's not um, full of rules, you know, that I I believe – the message of loving your neighbor as yourself is really the only thing that you have to follow and everything else falls into place. Um, But I've also 
found a, a real happiness in just doing small things for other people. Sometimes you you can be an angel in someone's life without even going to too much bother. And I think a lot of times people don't realize um, how fulfilling this is, that, that whatever you can do, if, if you just take your mind off yourself and are thinking about other people, that, uh, that there's, there's a great deal of happiness in that. Mm. That, that, that we do have a lot of control over our lives. Um, yeah. and, and I think that I've read a, a book called Flow, um, some years back also, and I, I'm forgetting the name. I think it was a Polish last name, started with a C. But it was about how our um, we, we experience this thing called flow when we do something that we're really good at and we lose track of time. And they, they did a study all over the world with people about when they felt the, happiness, the happiest. And they felt the happiest whenever they had completed a project that they completely lost time while they were doing it. And they were in this state called slow. So right after I read that, I actually wrote and completed a short story for the first time since college. And then I started taking that lesson to other parts of my life. It's not just the ability to do these things, but just, but just doing them, you know, you set out, there's a cliche where they go, you know, take some baby steps. Um, But that's what you do every day. You know, you think about what you want to accomplish, and you just set things in motion towards that. And I think that it's very fulfilling. I, 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 yeah. Time time passes so quickly for me. It seems like it's always whoops, it's Thursday again. Um, <laughs> and I and I make the joke that I'm I'm late everywhere I go because I don't want to leave where I'm at. Mm. <laughs> you know? I like that. <laughs> I like that for sure. <laughs> it's <a good> excuse. <laughs> exactly. It's really great. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't uh, want to wake up in the morning, don't want to go to sleep at night, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, just just want to be right where I am all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So I don't know if you've totally I mean that's that was great. I I love that. I want to get a little more in depth with um Somebody Music, comes probably. up to you. No, 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 no. When mm-hmm. somebody comes up okay. to you and you've got this vision that you're working towards and they're just like, really like a naysayer, like, well, why would you want to do that? Oh, that's crazy to do that. And what how, What do you do to get them out of your head? Well, I tell you, one of the best forms of revenge is success or, or <laughs> maybe revenge isn't the right word, but I know that um, – sometimes that naysaying is exactly what makes you accomplish the thing that you're trying to accomplish. It's just simply because someone told you no. Um, You know, I'll give you an example. When I was in in junior high school, we had a sorority rush for high school sororities, and they were citywide back in Springfield, Missouri, back, you know, a million years ago. And um, there were three of them, and the best sorority um, I did not get into um, and I went to this private high school and all my friends were in it. And pretty much all my friends dumped me the summer after eighth grade. And um, rather than take what they called quick call and join the best sorority as a second choice, I um, joined the second best sorority. There were only three members at my school. And I set out to be the most accomplished person at my high school just to shove it into the Lambda's face. <laughs> Um, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it later, um, but I just wanted to show them that, uh, you know, that they were not the best, you know, most popular people out there and that, you know, tough eyes could do something too. And it, it's kind of a thing I've kept with me all my life is that uh, tenacious, um, you know, struggle for the underdog, um, which, you know, there's a, there's a definitely a joy in that as well. Um, so if somebody is making you feel bad, first of all, if you can't do anything about it, you should not expose yourself to a lot of toxicity. You know, you don't have to listen to it. Um, and I've also had a, an ability to to tune things out sometimes, you know, maybe maybe to excess anyone who's tried to talk to me while I'm reading or I'm, I'm thinking about something else. But certainly, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're like, have you heard a word I've said? No. Um, my, my, mother, my mother actually drove a car into a lake when I was nine years old and the family joke was I was sitting in the back seat with a book and I, I did not notice <laughs> the car was sinking <laughs> into the water and I was so into my book that I didn't even notice. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I think the ability to to focus on the things you want to focus on is is you know. Yeah, and that's Certainly focus not right if you're there. Drown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's intense focus. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Well, yeah, it, it helped me as an actress. It helped me as an actress um, to you know to be able to to concentrate and make believe and, and you know become somebody else or be in another place and time. Um, yeah, but I think that's part of that.
about the the actress thing? Like, how did that come about? I um, I did speech tournaments and stuff in high school. So when we moved out uh, to Los Angeles, I was working with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. I, I produced the Jerry Lewis Telethon in Joplin, and um, I did that for a year out here. And when I quit to act, um, I, I studied the Meisner technique, um, which is sort of a repetition exercise, and it's almost like like therapy, you 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 learn what pushes your buttons and what makes what makes you happy, sad, what makes you angry, and I found that anger was a difficult emotion for me to reach. Um, mm. You know that that uh, pretty much the only things that really made me angry were people wasting my time or or calling me stupid. <laughs> 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 Definitely gets my goat. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I, I also, uh, eventually what I, what I came around to was comedy. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I was, I could definitely bring up tears. I'm one of those people who can cry on cue. Um, but to make people laugh, uh, it was, became really my goal. So my, uh, what I did, I, I, I did a few like guest stars on some sitcoms and, um, I did a few, uh, most of my body of work is comedic. So, you know, <laughs> boy, doesn't that sound funny? <laughs> um, I'm always fascinated. How do you memorize like scripts? Like, how does that whole process work? Because I'm like, I sit and watch TV, and I'm thinking about, like, how do these people do that? Because like sometimes I have all I can do just to memorize lyrics on stage. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, you know what? I would tell you that I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't memorize things anymore. <laughs> that definitely comes more difficult. And, uh, you know, it's an age thing probably, so I'm not going to sweat it or try to make yeah. myself do it anymore. But, yeah, hey, there's a, re- there's a, there's a few reasons why I'm not acting anymore. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, definitely be one of them. <laughs> awesome. Uh, talk about mentors. Did you have mentors along your path and in different areas, and how did they affect you? I wish I could say I did. Um, I uh, I would have to say Jeff Greenberger with the Village Recorders has been um, probably the closest thing to a mentor that I've had. Um, but generally – um, the way that uh, my my work situ- situation, my daily life has been for maybe the past 15 or 20 years, I've been like the oldest person in the room for, for quite a while. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of the people I work with are a lot younger than I am. And um, I would say that I, I feel like I've probably mentored more people than have mentored me. Mm. Um, and that there is, a, a, and not to say that I wouldn't have loved that, but I just uh, a lot of the stuff I've done, I just sort of felt like I was striking out on my own, or that there was no one to to ask for help. I, I have always read a lot, and I think that that's you know where I found a lot of my inspiration. Um, but uh, generally, um, I've I found myself, especially you know for the last ten or fifteen years, um, giving a lot of advice to people. Um, you know, I try not to do it unless they ask me. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, and, and especially as far as uh, female mentors go, um, you know, I'm, uh, well, I just turned 56. So I'm, which there, that's an unusual thing that a woman in Los Angeles would tell you how old she is. But um, I I cannot seem to take it off my Facebook. It's it's a life event, and I can't erase it. So I just got to live with it. But uh, definitely, I I don't mind telling especially young girls that, because I think they're oftentimes a surprise, you know, that you don't have to feel locked down or bored or trapped um, at this age, uh, that you can still find an adventure in life every day. and, and perhaps that is because I don't have a mortgage or children. Um, I do have a wonderful godson. He's five years old. Um, and that's kind of, uh, you know, helped in that respect crazy at this age for a woman. Um, <laughs> certainly not going to start now. <laughs> there, I'm with you. To happiness. 
Yeah, don't change diapers. <laughs> avoid changing diapers. And then oh, avoid wearing good... them again as you get older. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. No, I, I have a good friend who had five children, and she said, you know, I dealt with human feces every day for like, 12 years and she 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 goes it changes you <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i'm sure yeah oh, yeah i i I've, I've avoided that path myself uh, on purpose <laughs> isn't it interesting though to be in a place where a lot of people don't have children and and that's a very unusual um you know i think in the history of the world here on the west side of los angeles um, there's very few people in my circle that that did that or are doing that, and um, I've you know had some girlfriends over the years. You know, have a baby, they kind of drop out of your life. Uh, they start making friends with all their friends from Lamaze class, and um, <laughs> right now I'm picking some of them back up as the kids go off to college. You know, it's like, oh hey, how have you been the last you know 18 years? <laughs> Good to see you. You know. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but yeah, they people used to say, uh, "Oh, you'll be lonely," you know, when you get old. And I guess there's still a time to see if that's true. But I, I can't imagine it happening. You know, I I used to say, "I'll just you know go to West Hollywood and be some crazy auntie diva person or something." <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And there's yeah. always pets, you know, and pets are much oh, better exactly. children than you know than humans. <laughs> And 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 do you know to tell you that I I'm just I'm so responsible that I do not have a dog because I work so much, you know. Yeah. Um, I I figure that you know if I get old and lonely I'll get a dog. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. Let's talk about securing the funding for fried green tomatoes, because I'm in a place right now where I'm trying to secure funding for this big festival that I'm producing here in Austin, Texas in September. And um, this whole fundraising aspect is like, wow. I worked with a company called Electric Shadow Productions, Anne-Marie Gillen. And and actually, do you know what? Talking about mentors, Anne-Marie might have been, I, I don't. She might have been slightly younger than me, but she's a really amazing woman. I haven't seen her, spoken to her for years, but she hired me over there, and I was reading scripts, which is uh, you know, a great job for someone with an English degree. It's sort of like writing book reports for a living. And um, <laughs> that uh, that company, it was all women. I, I think at one point there was only one guy in the office, and he was you know at the front, you know, as the like host or you know. Uh, answering the telephone and it was a very progressive company and it was an exciting place to be working i just uh wasn't really interested in working in development uh, you know i did it over at trimark too and um didn't really pursue any opportunities to advance in the film business um i the production work that i did uh i enjoyed a lot but i have to say that you know, you, most of that stuff you have to be up at five in the morning, um, and mm. it's just a relief not to have to do that anymore. Yeah, but, uh, it, I, I would think that the process for funding is, I'm sure, a lot different than it was 25 years ago. Um, mm. For one thing, you know, we've got crowdsourcing now, which is an amazing thing. Um, I've I've been hearing about a lot of films being financed that way. Um, also, with with uh, digital equipment, um, you know, it's a, a lot less expensive to film mm-hmm. than it was. 
um, when I worked with Filmmakers Alliance, um, we worked on minuscule budgets. And, uh, you know, if you've got a good script and good performers and actually the sound is usually the thing that trips people up. And, and I know that, you know, from being now from an audio background that. Uh, well, um, Kathleen. To take care with, um, mm-hmm. not just the lighting and everything else, but the, the, the sound is really one of the one of the things that will show up your small budget. But yeah. uh, I think it's a very exciting time to be a creator right now. Um, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Lots of doors opening and uh, windows of opportunity for people who mm-hmm. are ready to go mm-hmm. out and, and get it. Yeah, definitely. Talk about um, some of the the charity kind of work that you've been involved with, like the recording Artists Against Drunk Driving well, and Brave the Vote and all that I, kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I mentioned the struggle to to – keep the studio open, you know, in some of these years that I, I've just recently come back around to realizing that this is something that was lacking in my life right now, that I had become too um, wrapped up in what I was doing and that I needed to um, to find something else to get involved with. And I think like so many people, when I saw the picture of that little Syrian boy on the beach I uh, spent the whole morning crying, and then I thought, why? what could I do? Could I do something? And this is where the uh, the refugee project began. Um, we always mm-hmm. slowed down a little bit over the holidays, and I thought, you know, if we've got any open time, I will have some artists come in and record some songs, and we'll, we'll do a benefit EP or record. And um, that's what Lakota's uh, soldier song um, was done for. She had another version of it, which is also excellent, and it's on her album, but uh, the version that uh, that you'll be hearing is the one that uh, she did organically with uh, real instruments at uh, at Fourth uh, Street, and that will be uh, part of a, a project. We'll probably do a live show, and you know I'll keep you informed about that. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I'm very I care very much about what's happening with people once they get on the ground. I know that in Calais uh, that there's like six thousand people there, and it's winter time. And they don't have adequate shelter or clothes um, or food and um, mm. it's just a global humanitarian crisis and, and not just the refugees from Syria you know all the yeah. refugees
like to save some space for our distinguished guests to share some final words of wisdom with our listeners. Okay. Let me think. I feel like I've <laughs> shared a lot of wisdom already. Um, I think that uh, we, we are at a, a uh, America is very polarized right now. And, and I, I find myself, you know, I, I come from a very, um, different sort of background from what you would call a red state. Um, and I think that uh, we all have the power within ourselves to do something every day that makes the world better. And um, certainly for the people that we come into contact with, that I would say that one of, my, uh, one of my goals in life is to make the world better instead of worse as I pass through it. And I would, you know, urge everybody to do the same. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week. 